Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Good morning, everybody, um, and welcome, I hope, to this uh, uh, today's webinar hosted by the University of Bath, the Institute for Policy Research. Thank you for joining us online. My name is Jane Miller, and I'm um, a professor of social policy at the University of Bath. And today I'm delighted to be joined by Fran Bennett from the University of Oxford and Neil Cooling from the Department of Work and Pensions. And we're here to discuss the policy issues relating to universal credit and couples. Couples are currently about 20% of all universal credit claimants, but their numbers will be much higher um, as the rollout continues and as and when tax credit claimants are migrated across. So this means couples are a substantial group and they face a system which is a mixture of joint and individual aspects. A joint means test, for example, and one monthly payment. Each partner in the couple is responsible for their own claimant commitment. Partners are jointly responsible for the claim, including reporting changes in circumstances and repaying any overpayments. There's only one work allowance for a couple. So this current mixture of joint and individual aspects. Our current research is funded by the ESRC and it's exploring issues of work, care and financial management for couples. I'm working on this with Fran Bennett and with Rita, Grif Rita Griffiths and Marsha Wood in the IPR. The fieldwork for the project was pre-COVID, although we're currently in a second phase, so we're currently interviewing people at the moment and following up their experiences um, since the lockdown. Um, and when we selected the sample, it was couples who'd been claiming for at least six months, so we weren't focused on that initial period of the claim. We were trying to focus on the period when the claims had settled down somewhat. Some of you may have attended our recent report launch and the report plus a short summary is available on the IPR website. So I encourage you all to have a read if you haven't done so already. We're not gonna be presenting the research results in any detail today. Instead, the idea is to focus on the policy issues and options as they apply to couples. In doing so, I think it's important to be aware of three points of context. First, some of the issues are specific to universal credits but some also apply to other means-tested benefits. Second, some of the issues are specific to couples, but some of them also apply to other um, universal credit claimants. And thirdly, there are, I think, some significant challenges in understanding what reforms to universal credit are possible and how. Do they require changes in the policy itself, changes in delivery, or indeed changes in both? So there's some disentangling to do there. But we have two great speakers to do that. Fran Bennett is a senior research fellow in the Department of Social Policy and Intervention at the University of Oxford and a visiting fellow at the IPR. Fran has a particular interest in social security policy, in gender issues, in poverty and income distribution. Alongside her roles at Oxford and Bath, she is also an independent consultant and has written extensively on social policy issues for the UK government, NGOs and others. Neil Cooling is Change Director General and Senior Responsible Owner for Universal Credit in the Department for Work and Pensions. This means he is responsible for the implementation of universal credit, including owning and communicating the vision for the programme, ensuring the implementation is completed safely and securely, and providing clear leadership to the to programme team. Neil took up, took up his role in 2013 and seen universal credit through some very challenging times, including the recent huge upsurge in claims. He probably knows the system better than anyone, so I'm delighted that he is able to join us today. 
In particular, I'm hoping you can help steer us through the tricky questions of what reform is possible and what isn't. Fran will speak first for about 15 minutes and then Neil for about 10 minutes and then we will have time for the questions. Thank you all again for joining us and I'll start by handing over to Fran. Fran, over to you. Thank you very much, Jane. So I want to thank my colleagues in particular to begin with, um, Jane and Rita and Marsha, uh, for a, a very good experience doing joint research on universal credit and couples. This is the outline of what I'm going to be talking about. I'm going to be focusing on design and payment, uh, as Jane said, and these are the five issues I'm going to be looking at and suggesting possible ways forward um, coming out of our research. And then uh, I'm going to do a, an overall conclusion. So uh, access to income for both partners was the first um, issue I was going to look at. This is not the same issue as uh, how households manage money, which is what it's sometimes confused with. Um, a small minority said to us it would make no difference to them whether universal credit was uh, split between them or not. And trusting partners uh, certainly transferred money between accounts, particularly because of mobile apps and so on nowadays. But there was some resentment uh, within some couples about going cap in hand to the other partner and the infantilization that that appeared to create for some people. And there was some financial coercion. Women who had experienced financial coercion wanted to be paid at universal credit themselves. The choice of universal credit payee within couples was often pragmatic. For example, who uh, was already on universal credit, perhaps as a lone parent before going into the couple, who was managing the money, uh, and so on. Um, but there was some balancing up deliberately by couples to ensure, if possible, that one person uh, didn't have all the income. So, for example, if one was an earner, the other one uh, would be the UC payee. There were few joint bank accounts, interestingly. Uh, women in particular wanted their own bank account, partly uh, to have their own financial footprint, and many saw joint accounts as potentially risky. Um, so in uh, universal credit, um, there are no longer arrangements for access to income to um, both partners as there were in the previous uh, systems. Um, what alternatives are there available in universal credit? Well, um, what the previous Secretary of State, Amber Rudd, suggested was that all universal credit should be paid to the main carer. So there's now a nudge in the online credit, universal credit um, claim form to do that. Um, but that's not really a balanced or complete solution. It's only for those with children, for one thing. Um, and also, um, it still gives all the universal credit to uh, one person uh, within the partner, within the partnership, sorry. Um, the other uh, alternative is one of the alternative payment arrangements, split payments. Um, but these are limited, exceptional, temporary, discretionary, and uh, some organizations have suggested may exacerbate the risk of uh, abuse. Um, and one couple in our sample, there was only one couple in our sample that had uh, a split payment. So in our sample, separate payments to each partner were generally seen as safer and fairer and more consistent with couples' lives today, even if that wasn't a problem for the couple themselves, and that echoes, I think, um, uh, pre-universal credit research by the Department for Work and Pensions, where people were concerned about other partnerships as well. Um, 
It could also be seen as a quid pro quo for individual conditionality, which of course is the case in universal uh, credit now. Um, and there was an, a DWP in-house report that suggested that conclusion uh, long before universal credit came about. The solution, I think, in terms of giving separate payments to each partner is, is not easy. And um, our sample had different views about how that might be done and what proportions might be given to each. So I don't think it's simple, um, but I think the best should not be the uh, enemy of the good, if you like, and we should be looking for uh, ways in which we might be able to achieve that. So access to income is not necessarily the same as, as financial autonomy, because on universal credit, um, as a means-tested benefit, of course, whether you get any income to begin with and what amount of income you get um, is dependent for one, as one partner, is dependent on uh, what the other partner does, the fact that the other partner is there, their resources, their needs, and so on. Even if that's a separate payment of universal credit, it's still dependent on um, the other partner. And even in our research, we found that for deductions, it could depend on your partner's past. So you might still be liable jointly for deductions which had um, been incurred before you got together as a couple. So it's important that universal credit is not the only benefit in the system. And I think we need to bear this in mind when we think about reforms, because other reforms could actually influence the position of people within universal credit, not only uh, reforms to universal credit itself. So it can help with some of these issues uh, that we've been talking about. So for example, in our research, child benefit was seen as a stable income. Um, it was dependable, you could rely on it. It didn't change with different circumstances, either employment or income or family. Um, and now of course, it's acting as a safety net as well. So it was important for some people on universal credit in our sample, it was actually described as a lifesaver uh, by some, because for example, if universal credit is stopped or it's reduced, you only get a week's notice about that um, and, and child benefit continues basically. So uh, the argument we made in the report is that you should retain child benefit as separate from universal credit, which at one point was uh, in doubt and you should uh, improve it. Of course, it's lost uh, nearly a quarter of its value since uh, because of the four-year freeze. But non-means-tested benefits, which um, are replacing earnings, of course, also provide individual income. So, for example, uh, contributory benefits like job seekers allowance, uh, or indeed uh, non-contributory benefits like carers allowance. But they were not given the same uplift as universal credit and working tax credit were um, during the uh, pandemic. So they were increased by about £20 a week um, and the non-means-tested benefits were not, meaning that the balance between means-tested and non-means-tested benefits is now rather different from what it was. And we may think about whether that is uh, any longer the right balance that we would want to see. But the main route to financial autonomy, of course, is via individual earnings. And uh, many women in particular have entered the labour market over recent years and therefore do have uh, their own income. Um, but many second earners have got worse incentives uh, on universal credit than they did on the legacy system, despite the aim of reducing welfare dependency, which is one of universal credit's aims, um, uh, which is obviously easier if you have two earners in your household. 
Um, and they also have worse incentives than the first earner on universal credit because uh, there's only one work allowance between uh, a couple, as we know. So financial autonomy via independent income may be less likely and therefore family or in-work poverty uh, may be more likely uh, than if the incentives were better. So this, uh, we would argue, needs uh, a review. What kind of policy options would there be if you wanted to do something about that besides the taper rate, which of course is a, a more general measure which could uh, affect everybody, although could we have differential taper rates? That's one question we might ask. So one idea would be two work allowances, which is the usual solution that is um, presented by people looking at this issue. Um, one is a bonus for each individual earner within a household, which is what France um, does within its means-tested system for those in work. One is partial individualization with part of your partner's earnings ignored before they count against uh, your, the benefit, um, which is what Australia does, um, and so on. But also, of course, again, looking outside universal credit itself, benefit systems and labour markets which require less reliance on means-tested in-work supplements uh, to boost people's living standards when they have an earner in the household is also one way in which you could uh, do something about this. And it goes back to the non-means-tested replacement of earnings benefits I was talking about just now. So assessment was another thing which we asked people about in our research and some people preferred monthly assessment because they said that there was less risk of overpayments than there had been in tax credits. But some people did not um, and uh, looking at some of the is issues um, caused by the monthly assessment, um, some couples in our um, sample had two earners and those people were affected more by the issues to do with universal credit. So in particular, the universal credit assessment period interacting with the timing of wages payments obviously had more um, uh, likelihood of affecting people if you had two earners with different wage periods, even if those wage periods are regular, I should say, um, because it affects people in that way, um, as well as those with irregular payments. And therefore, there was a risk of volatility and unpredictability of income, um, which was doubled, if you like, for those with um, two earners uh, in, their, in the couple. Um, and also, of course, there was more um, likelihood of losing universal credit altogether because of the way in which assessment periods and pay periods um, uh, interacted. Um, the monthly assessment could also be a disincentive in one earner couples because if they decided to do extra shifts, for example, they were sensitive to the idea that their um, partner, who was probably the one getting universal credit, that their income would be um, reduced. Um, it was also harder for two earner couples in particular to know whether the universal credit amount was accurate um, because there were so many uh, factors uh, involved. So the issues here are the uh, fixed monthly assessment period um, and assessing pay uh, in terms of when it's received uh, rather than when it is, what it is intended to cover in terms of a time period. And I think we would just say that any solution needs to be general rather than just one for couples. It's probable uh, that there needs to be a, a general solution to this in terms of reviewing 
the method and dates of assessment to give greater security of income and predictability of income uh, for claimants of universal credit, which is the principle that we think uh, any review should um, try to follow. So childcare costs, only a small number in our sample got help with childcare costs. Um, so we are obviously careful about what we can say about that. Um, but it still brought out the issues because all but one of those couples um, actually had difficulty in um, dealing with childcare costs. And some interviewees um, were actually tempted to give up jobs or had actually uh, done so. Um, so uh, the way in which childcare costs are um, dealt with tends to exacerbate the um, effect of, work, worse, of the worse incentives for second earners. Although, of course, problems affect lone parents as well as couples. This is not just a couple's issue. Um, so it was the payment up front and reimbursement in arrears that was particularly uh, difficult for people. And they had a preference for either the legacy arrangements like tax credits uh, or indeed the free provision of childcare, which of course some people um, get already. The House of Lords Economic Affairs Committee report recently suggested a separate system for childcare costs. And there are of course other options such as uh, as well as more free provision, which our sample talked about, uh, you could do subsidies to providers, which is more common internationally. Um, and of course, some people have suggested that um, the universal credit should be paid directly to providers, just like uh, housing costs can be um, paid direct to landlords. Uh, so reviewing the system to reduce problems is the, is the kind of uh, headline that we think should happen there. The uh, flexible support fund is very welcome, but it doesn't, it's not a complete solution. So the last issue to look at was gender roles and relationships, which of course underlines the whole uh, of our research really. Um, women were affected more by many features of universal credit we found, um, some of which would worsen the risks of domestic abuse or uh, unequal partnerships more, more generally. Um, about one in three women, about one third women, of women in our sample had ever experienced, in other words, had experienced at some point, controlling behavior or financial abuse uh, in a couple relationship. Um, and it was a factor, an intimate partner violence included, was a factor uh, in family breakdown for most of the lone parents in our sample, seven uh, out of nine. Um, and um, women, we found were more likely to manage the universal credit claim uh, and the family budget uh, within the couple. So uh, whilst there were women who had experienced financial abuse, um, uh, it was often the woman, and this is common to other research, it was often the woman in low-income families who manages the universal credit claim uh, and the family budget. And to put both of those together actually was uh, quite a lot of work. Um, some couples actually preferred a single payment all in one of universal credit and found that easier to manage, particularly if they had earnings coming in as well. Uh, but for those who didn't in particular, the fact that universal credit had no labeling, was paid all in one, uh, could be volatile, the amount was known only a week before payment, um, made it budgeting more difficult. And it was often left to the woman to do that more difficult budgeting. So um, what our report said was that universal credit is not just like work, it is work. Uh, and it's often work for women and often with no let up. And they were also trying to manage childcare and possibly uh, a part-time job as well. 
So we think a review of the administrative or compliance burden, if you like, uh, is needed uh, in universal credit. Another gender role and relationship issue is that couples with children must nominate a main carer, of course, sometimes called a lead carer. In our sample, this, was, this tended to be determined by existing roles. Um, so not just the budgeter for the household, um, uh, but also the person who took on the majority of childcare and that 27 out of 30 couples, um, the uh, woman was uh, nominated as the main carer. But some couples objected to this compulsory division of labour, if you like, um, or division of label at least, um, and felt that it could reinforce traditional um, patterns of male breadwinner uh, families. And of course, there's no recognition of the parenting role for uh, the other partner in terms of any impact on their job searching availability um, in terms of the uh, conditionality um, regime. Um, and this was seen as not really reflecting contemporary norms or practices amongst families. And so uh, we think we need more flexible arrangements to recognise parental responsibilities in different families and how that's carried out. So in conclusion, we found that amongst couples, universal credit seemed to work best for one earner couples uh, with stable income. But of course, in today's society, universal credit needs to work well for a much wider range of couples than that, including blended families, including survivors in controlling relationships and so on. And how universal credit works was, as I've said, seen by many in our research as not consistent with today's norms and ways of living in couples. And so our more general um, conclusion from that is that um, universal credit should take more account of the joint and separate interests of partners um, rather than just the joint interests um, in order to make universal credit work in its own terms as well as work for a range of uh, different kinds of couples who are claiming it. Um, of course, the £20 uplift, which I've mentioned, is of also of relatively less value uh, to couples and families. Um, so we think that it's time for a review of the relative rates uh, between um, single people and couples and those with children and those without children. COVID-19 uh, has actually um, thrown issues for couples into stark relief, particularly the joint assessment in means testing, because a lot of people are not actually qualifying for universal credit as a couple because of their partner's presence and uh, income or capital. Um, so we think it's a, a good time to look at this, um, and we think the pandemic should not be allowed to mean policy stasis. So we think it's time to consider policy changes for couples now. And I look forward to hearing Neil Cooling's response. Thank you. I'll mute myself. Um, I can work Zoom, honestly. Thank you, Fran. Um, as ever, um, really interesting presentation. And um, the report, if people haven't read the report, is well worth um, a read. If I dare give it a plug as well. Um, we've certainly given it um, some serious consideration inside the department. Um, I thought I won't talk for a long time and what I'm going to avoid is um, long um, uh, defences of the government's position because I guess you've heard all of those. I'm going to try and sort of focus on um, just guiding people around the architecture of the system 
and give you a sense of what's easier to do and what's much harder to do. Uh, and um, but but that shouldn't be inferred, he said, for the tapes that I support any of these measures or not, because that wouldn't be uh, appropriate to my role. Uh, I thought I'd just start with a minute or two just on where we are at the moment. Um, you'll know that um, uh, COVID continues to challenge um, our society and indeed the world uh, in terms of its impact. Uh, some of you would have seen the Chancellor's announcements yesterday about the successor to the furlough scheme. Um, you'll also know that there was a big uplift in um, universal credit claims um, in uh, March. And there's a lot of talk about, um, you know, not just the second wave of the pandemic, but um, a second wave of um, unemployment uh, hitting us. And we're certainly readying ourselves for that in the department. As I explained to the PAC yesterday, I don't think it's going to be quite the same nature. Uh, I did an uh, interview with the Sunday Times a couple of weekends ago now where I talked about the day that the, governor, the government announced the self-employed um, income support scheme and we saw a huge surge in claims almost as the Chancellor sat down and stopped speaking as people realised it wasn't going to be in place. In fact, my HMLC colleagues put it in place a month earlier than we anticipated at the time, uh, but that that led to an unprecedented number of claims from self-employed people. I don't think you'll see that kind of spiking again. I think you'll see a more steady and more usual kind of um, growth in unemployment that we've seen in um, previous um, recessions. So significant volumes, but spread out a bit more than the, we, we were getting, I think the top number we got one day was about 130,000, I think on the day that the Chancellor made that announcement claims uh, when, um, you know, we, we, we would normally have a few thousand each day. So you can see the kind of quantums we were, um, we were trying to deal with. Um, we're actually six months in, in a lot better shape than we were in our March in, in, in that we've recruited an awful lot more people. Um, uh, so we wouldn't have to necessarily uh, stop all other work as we practically did um, in order to deal with the, the first surge. Um, but it, you know, it, it partly depends on um, what, what comes down the um, tubes at us. Um, but, you know, the department's shown it's quite flexible and the system which my team has built has also shown it's quite um, uh, flexible. We've made over 100 changes, I think, in the last few months um, just to um, adapt it to the uh, new environment that the, um, the pandemic is sadly forcing on us. So that's the kind of backdrop and, uh, you know, and, and, and I am on the record as saying, I know Fran uh, said um, she wants some policy change now and understand why. Um, I'm a bit loath to do open heart surgery on the system uh, whilst I've got lots of volumes to um, contend, contend with because that you know, is a very kind of high risk thing to do. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not ruling things out. We have made uh, changes and we are making future changes as well that we've pre-announced, but um, you know, it does bring with you a sense of um, risk. And the dilemma here is, is, is one with our changes, is that some things we've architected deep into the system because there's, there's nothing else you can do in order to build a system. You have to hang it around a set of rules and you need some guiding rules about that. And um, you know, the monthly assessment periods are, is a very good um, example of that, which we've laid out ultimately in the court 
um, for anybody who wants to read all the court uh, things I've sworn statements and the like for that. Uh, but you know, those are those are key building blocks. On other things, you've got lots of choice around. And Stephen Timms, who I admire greatly, both as an ex-minister and now as the chair of the um, Select Committee, sometimes in frustration said, Neil, you promised me the system would be agile and so much more flexible. And it is, it's, we've, we've proved that over the pandemic with all the, I say the 100 changes we, we've made. But there's a limit to your flexibility. You can't completely rewrite the kind of base code uh, and, and, and a new system emerge um, from that. So, um, you know, if you want changes to the way Universal Credit's been architected, you can change and develop things, but you can't have a completely new kind of base code to it. You would have to start and build a new system for that. And, um, you know, having been building this one for about 10 years uh, in terms of I did the policy design, then had a couple of years off and then came back as SRO for the last six years, I can tell you is a long term piece of work. So that's the kind of context. Um, you know, um, in terms of um, um, the sort of things Fran was saying and asking, I mean, I think, I think there's a tension. When, when you look at split payments, they're not impossible to do. We have them in the system, and at some point I will automate those and make them happen. I think the question around split payments is a policy one about what policy do you want there? And I think it comes out a bit in the research that um, Fran was talking about, which is, uh, have you got a gender equity uh, driver here? So I just want to ensure it's 50-50 between people. Or are you trying to tackle um, the kind of financial and domestic abuse um, that um, you know, was coming out in the, um, the research here? Because you actually would do things differently. I mean, I've been splitting payments since I used to have a real job and worked on the on, in a in a social security office back back when dinosaurs ruled the earth. And um, you know, we used to split payments because often it was often he he was a drunk, and he would spend all the money if we gave it to him. Uh, so we'd give him a little bit of pocket money, and we'd make sure all of the the money went to the the rest of the money went to the partner, so she could feed and clothe the kids and um, so 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 forth so 50 50 split there would actually be disastrous so i think this is why i know the scottish government's been looking at this um you know it's not it's not an easy um thing to emerge as an actual policy you you can have statements of principle here but when you work it through it's very hard to do um it's not impossible to 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 automate and make that happen. It would be a big job to do. Uh, so the thing I've said to Scottish government colleagues is, I need a I need a settled policy. I need to know what it is you want to do, and it needs to work with the system as it's built as well. So they 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 had a bit of a flirtation with, well, could you play this element here and this element there? I said, well, the elements don't appear in the system in terms of the final payment, so it's not easy to do that. Remember, a third of people on universal credit are in work, so they're not getting 100% universal credit. They're getting uh, a, a proportion of that. So I'd need to know rules of how you wanted that split and so forth. So it's not an easy policy ask, that, that one. Uh, it's a big delivery question too, uh, but we can do it if we, could, if, if, if we had a clear policy uh, and, and you were happy with some of the outcomes that you would necessarily get from it. I was asked about um, um, 
the uh, single earner, two earner uh, discussion. When we were designing universal credit, we were designing for a problem with workless households and we were trying to get work into the household. So we were less concerned about second earners in that in that policy discussion. I'm not breaking, preaching any confidentiality here. In Duncan Smith was very open about this at the start. It was about workless households. So um, you know, less thinking has gone into um, how do you incentivize second second earners because we were worried about at the time kind of work rich households compared to work poor households. Um, differential taper rates. We certainly are planning uh, when we've finished um, uh, the, the implementation to test uh, different taper rates to see if they have an effect on um, uh, uh, work incentives. Um, differential taper rates within the system for class of case A, class of case B may be more tricky um, to, to do, um, but um, you know, increasing the size of work allowances, for example, isn't a problem. We did that um, in um, 2019. Um, we've made them smaller um, a few years previous. So flexing that and giving a kind of um, pseudo um, second work allowance into couples um, shouldn't be too tricky. Uh, an operational thing to do, I would say. Um, um, in terms of assessment, you know, solutions being a general solution, I mean, I think this goes to the heart of it. I think in that space, you're into some of the deep architecture, if I'm honest. I think depending on what you might recommend or come out with, um, and very interested in the, in the questions to come, if you can be specific, I can you know, try to, to answer questions about what is or, or isn't possible. But you're, you're quite co you're you're quite close to the DNA of universal credit with um, some of those questions um, there. Childcare costs. Um, yeah, I saw the um, the um, House of Lords report. Obviously, I gave evidence actually to the inquiry. Um, I think the the IFG described it as a bit of a blunderbuss of a of a of a report. Um, the problem, if you take childcare out of out of UC is that you run the risks of um, double taper rates again, which is what's bedeviled the, the legacy system, which is why you have the very high marginal reduction rates in the legacy system, because the HP taper combined with the CTV taper, combined with the tax credit taper to produce MDRs of 95% um, and the like. Um, so if you wanted your childcare help to be income related, then um, you would immediately bump into that, to that problem. And you'd probably have a less effective system, even though you were attempting to make it more effective. Um, you know, I'm struck in Britain how we've put all our subsidies into the benefit system, whilst in other countries, as um, Fran's analysis showed, they pay subsidies direct to providers, um, so that it's it's kind of taken out taken out of the individualised ben benefit system. That's the way you wanted to go because of perceived problems with the way in which we pay it through to universal credit. Um, you know, obviously that's not that's not paid within my system, but that might be a, a way to go there. But if you're gonna if you're gonna have it through universal credit, it has to be paid in arrears. Um, 
and indeed we pay it the way we do because of the level of abuse around childcare costs there was in tax credits was one of their biggest areas of fraud and error loss um it's not to say everybody is doing that but you pay it up front that's something you you um, have to deal with um and finally um just quickly and then to leave time for questions um gender roles and um relationships um couples i think it's fair to say in in terms of um making the couple claim work inside of the system what took a lot of design uh, and um, you know I'm sure there'll be questions about where well, you got that wrong Neil or you should be doing it this way or that way um, but it proved to be a very difficult thing to do so a very easy thing to say that you wanted uh, shared um, uh, household assessment we'd done that for years in the benefit system before but when we brought conditionality in when you bring earnings in as well um, it's a very difficult thing to do and again you're trading optimizing things here so you know if you don't bring them together and you um, want responsiveness in the system to changes in earnings which is what we wanted then you get one set of outcomes if you want fixed incomes and certainty so you want non-responsiveness in the in the system you might have cost you might have unmet need and um, how do you deal with that and it's interesting if you take the long view looking at social security over the last 40 50 years you can see people like me and all my predecessors wrestling with these dilemmas and coming up with different solutions you know the most obvious is tax credits big overpayments still creating big overpayments each year universal credit more income instability as the system frankly works as intended it adjusts as your earnings go go up and down and ultimately that's a that's a policy choice for um, ministers parliament and society as a whole to take but there's no way of getting both um you know that um adaptation to a set of circumstances and uh, income certainty they are always in tension and um you know ultimately ministers parliament and the like have to make choices about what what they want with universal credit ministers have been very clear um, the choice they want to make they want to incentivize work by people seeing a reward for their work in terms of extra income in the, in that month and that's how we've designed the system jane that's probably enough from me um, to allow time for a few um, questions Thank you very much, Neil. That was great. And thank you to Fran as well. Two really interesting presentations. And I think a good reminder of the really serious challenges faced in trying to think through some of these issues. Um, the point about trade-offs is very important. I mean, that there are trade-offs, you've got to think through policy objectives and what you're trying to achieve. And Neil brought that out very strongly. And also those challenges of the um, what's the what what's in the DNA, as Neil put it, um, and what can actually be tackled. Um, uh, a bit more easily. Um, I think for couples, it's very interesting the timing, I think, because couples aren't on the system in a big way yet, they're coming in, but they're still yet to come. It is a good moment to think about these issues to make sure that we're sort of ready or the system's ready as more couples come into it. So, so the timing's very good for trying to think through some of these issues and problems. Um, 
Fran, I'm still waiting for questions and answers. I think the audience out there is thinking hard about the difficulties and challenges. So I'm going to ask Fran if she wants to respond to any of Neil's points first, um, and then we'll see what questions come in. Thank you very much, Jane. Uh, I did want to thank Neil very much for a, a very thoughtful response. I think it's really helpful. And I hope we can go on uh, having a conversation about this. But I think the crucial thing he said was what is in the DNA of the system and what isn't. Uh, one of the techie people who have been coming out of the woodwork recently to comment on universal credit more than they have done in the last um, decade, I would argue, uh, one of the techie people said um, it's like Lego bricks. So uh, if you change the bobbles on the Lego bricks, you can shift Lego bricks around within the building that you're building. Um, you can put different kinds of Lego bricks in different places and you can shift them around and make a different building. But if you change the bobbles on the Lego bricks, I can't remember what he called them, but if you change the bobbles on the Lego bricks, they don't fit together anymore. So I think that's quite a good metaphor for what, I hope Neil agrees, uh, for what Neil is saying about um, what is in the DNA of the universal credit system. Now, the question then arises, uh, was it a good idea to go in that direction with the DNA as it is uh, in that kind of system? And people would have obviously different views about that, um, but, um, how much of that can be changed and how much of it cannot and how much of it can be changed in a more systemic way rather than just having workarounds if you like which i think is what we've got for some things um, at the moment that people have found difficult is obviously a critical the critical perhaps policy issue um, and and delivery issue within universal credit i suppose the only thing i would say and obviously this is um is not the area of benefits that, that um, Neil is responsible for, is I do think that makes it even more important that we think about the makeup of the benefit system as a whole. Um, and I think one of the um, things which, uh, for example, um, Rod, Rod Hick um, has pointed out in, a, in an IPR uh, blog recently, is that the um, contributory benefits over the period of the uh, pandemic have not really been, they haven't really figured uh, very much as something that people have been, um, uh, you know, encouraged to claim. And I think uh, we should look at both child benefit and the um, uh, other benefits that we have, which are not means tested, because when Neil talked about the tension between giving a secure, reliable income uh, that doesn't respond to circumstances other than big changes um, versus um, trying to make your um, uh, the benefit respond to your changes of circumstances. Of course, a lot of other countries place a lot more emphasis on the benefits which do not change in line with your, um, your means, your resources. And if we did that a bit more, perhaps, we'd be putting less weight on the universal credit system to solve some of these problems and the tension would become slightly less. Good. Thank you very much, Fran. That's very useful. Neil may want to come back on some of that, but I'm getting questions in now. So I think I'm going to turn to the questions that are coming in. And I've got questions on childcare, on second earners and on the assessment area. So let's start with childcare, which is from Kelly Marie Jones. 
Accessing the childcare cost element is very important for incentivising work. Fran mentioned that take-up was low. Is this a concern for the DWP, Neil? Take-up of the childcare? It, it certainly is because it might be telling us something about the, our success in encouraging families, particularly lone parents, into work. I mean, tax credits were part of the, the great success story of our raising of the participation rate in work of lone parents over the last 20 years. It was a beautiful mix of tax credits, universal credit, benefit changes. I know it's going to be controversial now with a few people, but greater conditionality, um, better provision of childcare. Um, you know, I mean, we've really, we went from one of the worst in Europe to, to, to one of the best over a generation. It's, you know, it's so, so I think I am concerned um, about, about that. And um, clearly I've got pandemic on my hands to manage at the moment, but you know, it, it is something we, we haven't had a lot of new claims. We were, you know, a lot of this will come as people transition over from tax credits, but you know, it is, it is something I think we've got to watch because it could be a, a sort of canary in the coal mine a bit that that aspect of the policy isn't working as we intended it. Great, thank you very much. I'm getting lots of questions in now, so we're probably going to have to jump around a little bit and see how many we can get to. But let me pick one out that's really at the heart of what the, our research and the issue is here about couples. It comes from CPAD training. One of the real issues for many claimants is what constitutes coupledom in the first place. As advisors, we still hear about the mythical three-night rule. The query we often get is, what happens to my benefits my boyfriend moves in? And increasingly, we hear about couples who separate emotionally but continue living under the same roof for childcare or economic reasons. So what's this coupledom issue? Is this still a challenge for you within DWP, Neil? Uh, it's, it's always been a challenge. I mean, I remember the first time I read the living together as husband and wife rules, which was what they used to be called eons ago and thought, what chance does that give me then? Um, you know, um, it's down to do you share a salt and pepper pot and, and um, mm. so forth. So it, it, is a, it is a very difficult thing to, to, to administer uh, within, within the system. Uh, of course, individualized benefits would come at a great um, cost. Um, and you would get some rather absurd um, outcomes as well that very you know, well-paid civil servants like, like me, um, their, their, their wife could um, claim benefits. So, so that's why we have the kind of household test, um, but um, CPAG training are quite, are quite right. This continues to be an area that society is evolving in as well. And indeed the economic circumstances as alluded to, I think in the bottom end of the question will influence some behavior too um, the key thing we try to look to is is there an economic partnership so we're we're not interested in who loves who um, we're trying to see is a common household kept um, and, and and that's the thing we've tried to hang on to here in any not let it go into any moral debates or the like it's it's very difficult let's go on to a question from sophie howes Fran, can you say a bit more about the administrative burden falling to women? And Neil, is this something DWP is thinking about? The burden that falls to claimants and how this might be shared in a household and how perhaps it could be shared with DWP a bit more? Fran, first a bit more about the burden falling to women. Yes, thank you. Um, 
I mean, what we were finding was that it was, um, and this, as I said, wasn't, isn't new in terms of research on low-income families, uh, that it's often the woman who manages the household budget for a start, yeah? So that's the first thing uh, in couples. And, you know, previous researchers found that that may be a source of pride. Um, so it isn't totally negative, but it, it is quite a lot of work. And then on top of that, because of the reporting necessary for universal credit, and particularly because of the conditionality and the fact that that is now um, uh, often two people, not always, but often two people's conditionality uh, that's being reported on in the uh, online journal and so on, um, uh, that, the, um, that, that the managing the claim of universal credit as well as managing the household budget actually adds to that uh, burden. And then, of course, a lot of women also have childcare on top of that. And as we saw um, from other things that, that I said, um, that was usually falling mainly to the woman in couples. Um, and on top of that, they may have a part-time job or they may be trying to get a part-time job or whatever. Um, so, um, I mean, the, I, I just uh, thought that the um, phrase which was used in the report, which I think it was Rita Griffiths, the main author, talked about first was this um, thing that universal credit is not just light work, it is work. Um, and often it was no let up for many women. Um, so uh, that was that was just um, what we found uh, for uh, many people and we're just um, wondering what could be done about that um, within uh, universal credit itself and how it is um, delivered by the DWP and what expectations there are on claimants. There is some work on this, often called the costs of compliance. I did some work with um, IFS colleagues quite a long time ago now, um, and there's also some more recent work. And uh, the kinds of costs that are talked about are the costs of learning how the system works, um, and the psychological costs uh, of uh, claiming and what that uh, does to people, uh, the time costs, clearly and that's what we've been talking about here and also often the money costs like uh, having to go to the job center for example or having to keep your phone uh, in credit so there are lots of different costs uh, but what we were particularly talking about was the time and as we know uh, quite a lot of researchers have talked about people in poverty also suffering from time poverty and that um, that that seems to be an issue here now I would only say before I stop uh, Neil will probably say, well, there was a lot of time involved in having to claim several different benefits from several different authorities. So, of course, uh, we would acknowledge that. Uh, but I suspect it's the conditionality um, and the increased monitoring of that uh, that is particularly adding to people's um, burden in terms of managing the UC claim. Thanks, Fran. Neil, is this compliance costs and issues that DWP thinks about? And so, one more. So when I read the research, um, this was the bit that grabbed the most of my attention, you know, in terms of, of just thinking about this, because you know, Fran alluded to what I might say. I mean, we were, we were trying to make things easier by putting it online. Um, and it is one of the things that my team are always thinking about, you know, how does the, how does the user, we have a very user-centered approach to developing um, the system. So, you know, my team are giving this, um, you know, a serious consideration 
um, you know, clearly we work within a framework of laws and so forth sent out by Parliament, but how we, how the system looks, feels and is experienced is something that, that, that is very important to my designers and they take great pride in. So, you know, we went, hmm, okay, not quite expecting that. So, yeah, we're, as I say, it, it was a thing that really, I really went, ooh, when I read the research. Mm -hmm. Let's press on. I've still got a lot of questions. We're probably not going to be able to answer them all in the, within the session, but we'll certainly um, look it up and see if we can answer some of them afterwards. But let's move on. <coughs> Sorry, Ruth George, question. With growing evidence of child poverty in single earner families and the need for greater stability for couples in a time of job insecurity, if both have a job, will DWP prioritise incentivising second earners? Neil, you talked of the, the, the design at the beginning was about getting one person into work, moving away from worklessness. Is it time to move to thinking more about second earners? So I think um, I, I can't obviously can't answer for ministers here in terms of what they what what they will do. But I think you you have seen in the pandemic the government trying to respond to the pandemic and the nature of it. In fact, I didn't I didn't pick up quickly on I'll quickly do on Franz point about the twenty pound increase. I mean, one of the beauties of the system was I did that in four days from a conception and, you know, I was asked what two things you think would make would be easiest to do. And it was the LHA rates and the biggest impact, the LHA rates and the 20 quid. Uh, did it as 20 quid for everybody. Frankly, uh, I didn't. I thought it was too complicated to try and explain £14.27 for a, 20, for a 20, under 25s and, you know, up all the couple rates and everything. I just grabbed the £20, to be honest. Um, and you know we just couldn't do it in the legacy benefits um that you know we've, we've we've tried to explain this it takes about five months work from getting a decision as to what the rates of benefits should be to put it through the systems we have to go through we have to switch off the systems weekend after weekend after weekend to implement the changes and they're very old very rickety systems it's one of the advantages of the of the of, of the bringing in universal credit is that we can do it in four days, uh, which is the speed at which we did it last time. Um, so um, that's why we didn't we didn't go down that route. Uh, then clearly ministers will reflect on everything they're being told, I'm sure, uh, and the secretary has a statutory duty anyway around about this time of year. So um, you know, so I can't say anything about that. But you know, changing the legacy benefits, everybody, you know, a policy has to be deliverable to be a real policy and it just isn't um, for, for legacy benefits at the speed at which we had to move. Thank you. Let's move on to a question about the architecture, anonymous attendee. In relation to the challenges with solving issues with the deep architecture aspect, which Neil mentions, what possible animated solutions are being considered for the non-banking shift day shift issue for monthly paid claimants? And what's the estimated time frame for the introduction of changes? Uh, I think the question there tempts me into the territory of um, ministers. Um, uh, having, having, I know I said this rather con con controversially, but the court case was actually quite helpful in in this respect because the decision of the High Court was so broad, it would have been, which is why we appealed, uh, it would have wrought real damage inside the system. Uh, the decision of the appeal court was much more reasoned. Uh, and allowed me much more latitude to come up with a solution there. 
And I said to ministers, you can accept this because I'm confident I can do that, but I'm not going to say today exactly how I'm going to do that or when we will um, announce some of that. I'm, we're, we're still going through final kind of di diligence he checks or something, but you know, ministers want to do this as soon as we can. We want to do it as, as soon as we can because the court took a rather mature view of the issue rather than the, the high court, I wouldn't say it's immature, but it was an interpretation that gave us, I don't think it was their intent, um, gave us big problems of how do you give effect to that? Because it, it was another one of these things that was intention, there were things in tension with each, with each other. Um, so I uh, can't, sorry, I can't tell you more than that. I'm going to I'm going to give two very quick questions and they're both for Neil to see if you can um, just give us a quick reply because our time's almost up. One's a, a, an anonymous question about um, maybe doing a 75, I've lost it on my, um, could the online claim form nudge people to nominate two bank accounts and could the award be something like 75-25 to reflect different um, elements? Um, what about the policy on advances? It feels like it's all or nothing in terms of paying advance. Is it possible to take a more nuanced approach? So, so we, we actually tested having two bank accounts in the claim process with us and claimants and it completely confused them as to what, as what they were what they should do. So we, we backed off of that. On advances, you can flex the amount of advance uh, you ask for. You can flex the repayment period as well up to 12 months and from next year, it'll be up to 24 months as well. So there is some flexibility in there as, as, as well. Um, so I didn't quite f follow what extra flexibility folk would want there, but you know, if, if they want to come back and put a, uh, another question in quickly i'm happy to look through the stuff i haven't answered and see what i can say after the um, webinar thank you neil and that's probably a point at which we need to stop on the questions and apologies to those people who i didn't get to in terms of the questions um, so there's a number still open and um, as neil has just said and i'm sure fran will agree we'll look at those afterwards and see if we can come back with some answers um, as i said the session's being recorded so it will become available online at some point in the future i'd like to thank you all for attending um, and for your very interesting questions i'd like to thank fran and neil for their excellent presentations they both managed to pack so much in um, into a relatively short period of time so i think we've been able to um, at least identify and start thinking about some very important issues that are going to affect millions of families um, over the months and years to come. So an ongoing conversation and discussion, I hope. Um, and thank you all again for coming along. Um, and according to me, the time is reaching 12 o'clock now. So we need to say um, goodbye and thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. Bye, everyone.